2: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Alizar Jan. Today, I'm joined by Othon Alexandrakis. Associate Professor of Anthropology in New York University. We will be talking about his book, Radical Resilience, Athenian Topographies of Precarity and Possibility, recently published by Cornell University Press. So thank you very much, Othon, for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm very happy to be on the podcast.
2: Um, So I want to begin by telling you how much I enjoyed the book, and I assure you I don't always say this (laughs) Um, but you know across each page your personal and ethnographic engagement really comes true to the reader or at least to me it did Um, so I'd love to learn more about how your background as an anthropologist and your personal reflections
1: brought you to this book Oh, that's uh, very kind of you. First of all, to say I'm 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 very glad that you enjoyed the book. Um, uh, I put a lot of uh, heart and soul into writing this one, so I, I you know it's it's great to hear uh, that you liked it, and I hope your readers enjoy uh, your uh, listeners enjoy it as well. Um, okay, so let me tell you a little bit more then about how I came to the book uh, and. Um, um, this is a bit of a longer story that you may be used to hearing, uh, and I'll try to keep it uh, concise. Um, this, of course, started off uh, during my um, uh, grad school um, at Rice University. I was a PhD student, uh, and um, uh, I promise this is not—you um, uh, know, this is not—this book is not uh, a rewrite of my dissertation. But it's sort of those were the roots, right? Uh, and at the time. Uh, Other students at Rice and we were all talking, uh, other PhD students were talking about uh, what an ethnography might look like, right? And this was a big concern. And this is George Marcus's department, of course, and um, James Fulbion was my. was my uh, supervisor, Uh, and we were talking about what an ethnography might be, um, uh, what uh, demands it may respond to, um, how we might communicate the stories that we wanted to tell from the field. And so uh, these were the conversations uh, swirling around at the time, and um, I developed this project to go to Greece and talk to uh, people on the fringes of the political mainstream. Uh, It was a really loose plan, and I wanted to talk to... uh, Uh, anarchists and uh, Roma um, and uh, undocumented migrants, you know, people sort of outside those main political spaces so that was the uh that was the book and I should say many of the interlocutors I met uh, in the field during my dissertation are in this book um and uh, uh many of their stories are 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 featured in in the chapters and so uh when I initially wrote the dissertation I, you know defended everything' was great I went off to do a postdoc uh at princeton uh, at the Hellenic studies program there and uh, my plan uh was to turn the dissertation into a book like so many people and um I uh, began that work, uh, but then, uh, as you uh, may know, of course you had, you do know, you read the book. Um, the um, economic crisis uh, was changing things, and so the dissertation that I wrote, uh, it felt like it didn't really fit reality anymore. Right? It felt like the stories that I were telling had changed, and the um, the lives of the people who I was trying to recount again were no longer, you know, uh, what was going on. And so uh, I undertook a rewrite. I revised, and um, uh, this was going well until 2015, when the refugee crisis hit Greece. And uh, I was uh, close to being done a draft at that point, but then again, uh, because some of my main interlocutors were undocumented migrants and um, uh, and others who work with them, uh, again these stories had changed. So it struck me that uh, again, the story that I was trying to tell, the narratives, the, it was just the beginning of the story. It wasn't. Uh, it, it felt like it was unfinished. That it was all new, and of course. We, we never tell finished stories, right? But um, uh, it was just, uh, it felt like we were in the middle of stuff happening. And so I, I was uh, rewriting and uh, the identity of the book changed uh, again and again, um, uh, from uh, something to do with uh, resistance and struggle, uh, to uh, organized action, to, you know, bare survival. And then eventually, uh, I found my themes, <laughs> which is hope and possibility. And uh, I, I, began to think again about the book that I was writing, um, reflecting on how it had evolved I, and uh realized that uh it was very, you know, ethnography forward. I have this in the introduction. It's it's about the stories of the people I spent time there. Who were kind enough to allow me into their lives, right? And um, uh, and so I wrote the book to promote connection between those people and readers uh, to convey sort of the stories that they were telling. And I felt like going back to those conversations with my uh, colleagues uh, at Rice. that this was the right way to write this book, right? That that, um, uh, that I had something to show, that they had something to communicate, and that I was going to help them do that. And so uh, these stories are motivated by this um, sort of uh, impulse to, to 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 foster connection and to help people sort of uh, not have a snapshot of somebody's life, but actually spend a little bit of time and and see how things. Uh, played out under these really terrible conditions, um, uh, in the hopes that they might, you know, uh, resonate with uh, what they may be going through, or uh, maybe they can uh, make more sense of what they're hearing about what these people have uh, endured. So that was the motivation. And I felt uh, that uh, the book, at least I felt satisfied after I'd written it, that, you know, the book does do this, Uh, at least I hope it does, um, uh, that these stories do foster some connection.
2: It really does. And I also really enjoyed how, even when you explain this, you connect both the people, but also the broader context of Greece, right? And how it really shapes everyone's lives. And, you know, as I was reading the book as an urban anthropologist, the role that Athens as a city plays really stood out to me. So I'll ask you to set the stage for our listeners who might not be familiar with the city. What about Athens prompts thinking about radical possibility, or hope
1: as you just mentioned? Sure, that's a great question, Uh, Athens. So we all have our favorite cities maybe uh, in the world. Athens is mine, uh, by far and away. Um, I've spent lots of time in Athens. So Athens is one of those places that people feel like they already know, right? Um, That um, they they, they imagine, people haven't imagined sort of Athens in their heads. Um, And it usually has to do (laughs) with, uh, you know, 3,400 years of history um, and uh, these temples and things that are there. But um, uh, I think the way that uh, I, you know, the the way that I think about Athens, I I think Greece is easternmost. edge of Europe. Right. And, um, um, Michael Hirschfeld written lots about uh, that sort of position of Greece in the European, uh, in Europe, uh, geographically, but also in the European imagination and things. And so that kind of, um, um, being on the edge or being at the edge, uh, I find very interesting, uh, and it um, uh, it plays out in multiple aspects of the um, of the city of the uh, sort of Athenian identity, um, if we can sort of generalize uh, an Athenian identity, uh, as being sort of on the edges of Europe. Um, and some people, of course, articulate that as being uh, on the border. Others talk about it in terms of um, uh, being a threshold. You know. So there's various different ways of of um, talking about that position of Athens. Uh, so anyway, uh, and that's of course in my mind, uh, great uh, Athens. It's interesting. It's not a terribly old city uh, by European standards. Um, it uh, became the capital of Greece uh, in 1843, if I'm not wrong. Um, and um, uh, it, at the time, that was established with the help of uh, European powers. Uh, and so they had uh, a, a big hand in uh, forming Athens as a capital city. So, uh, it is part of this sort of European project, um, of making modern Greece. Uh, and so it has that sort of colonial history, uh, which is fascinating in Europe. And, um, uh, once established, then we have several waves of migration to the city. We have the uh, Greek refugees from Asia Minor coming in the twenties, uh, World War II, and then we see a huge influx of people, fifties and sixties, coming to Athens to make a better life. Um, and so uh, it's uh, it was it was a it was a city that became the capital and then uh, became uh, quickly populated during these events. And during these periods of time, uh, and of course, uh, during the 90s, this is a maybe a little bit lesser known uh we start to see uh lots of migration um coming in uh from uh, other parts of europe as well so the 90s is a period where we have uh, another population boom so presently there's three three and a half million people living in athens that's 35 percent of the entire population of the country so that's a lot of people um and uh Athens is a city of neighborhoods, right? So um, uh, it's uh, all little sort of neighborhoods, each with a unique identity, uh, uh, their own histories. Um, uh, There's lots of, uh, you know, when you... Walk down Athens, you'd see modern apartment blocks, ancient temples, pedestrian boulevards. There are still walls riddled with bullet holes from the civil war, right? So there's so much in Athens, um, and uh, it's a place where people travel to looking for a better life, right? It's a, a place where people built. Things for themselves. Uh, it's uh, a location of art, of uh, um, of industry. It has a port. Anyway, this is all to say that uh, Athens is a very vibrant place um, with a very sort of unique position in Europe. Uh, it has an exciting history. Uh, at least I think so. Um, but. Most recently, uh, it's also been a place where people have been subjected to very intense uh, neoliberal austerity, Um, where uh, uh, a city has experienced sort of mass sudden impoverishment. Uh, where they where Athenians witnessed you know thousands of uh, people in 2015 uh, literally walk through the streets uh, towards a better life. so all of these things um, have sort of come together and in my mind make it a very interesting place for thinking about possibility uh, thinking about um, people uh, sort of, trying for, or, or coming there for something better, working towards something, um, and most recently being pushed beyond their limits, right? Uh, and uh, trying to make uh, even just a life worth living in this very vibrant uh, place. So uh, this is a long answer to your question again, um, but uh, I just, I feel that Athens, to me, um, it, it's, it's a place that is uh, sort of a prime with uh, possibility It's an excellent place for thinking about um, people building things uh, and living with each other, um, uh, coming through some very interesting histories uh, and, uh, you know, um, making a life in this uh, really vibrant city. So uh, that's the Athens, I imagine.
2: Indeed. And I think that's very helpful to um, sort of populate Athens, um, which is at the heart of my next question. So, you know, throughout the book, as you know, we meet many Athenians who experience different withdrawals from and intensifications of social life. So how do their stories culminate in a social topography of resilience, in your own words?
1: That's a very good question. And this is the heart of the book, isn't it? (laughs) So please summarize the book. Please <laughs> summarize the book. Okay. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, so uh, I think it's uh, it, <laughs> it's a big question. So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best uh, to sort of condense things. So here we go. So the book, um, I just sort of sketched a picture of, of this big Athens, right? Uh, it's not about everyone, right? This book is not about everyone. Uh, this book is about um, those people uh, who have encountered some sort of emergency in their lives, right? Who, um, have sustained some sort of injury, uh, be it from uh, neoliberal austerity from, um, uh, from the, uh, re- refugee crisis or some other combination. And we should say, I, I guess I should say, uh, that, you know, the, um, Economic situation in Athens has not been great for a long time, right? Uh, it, it, that problem predates the um, sovereign debt crisis uh, of 2010, so it's a, it's a long time coming, right? This problem. And uh, my interest is in uh, those people who were pushed beyond their limits, right? So uh, individuals who uh, had sustained some sort of injury, be it uh, pension cuts, uh, loss of work, uh, salary uh, cuts, or uh, seeing their social support networks eroded, or um, having services uh, that are vital to their lives kind of taken away or whatever it may be, um, uh, suddenly find themselves uh, completely uh disoriented and unable to sort of carry on right so that's the population uh that i'm working with and uh i get the question that you asked about social topography of of resilience and in the book i define that as this kind of aggregate ground of coming through injury right this uh aggregate ground of coming through injury and so the people who i work with are the ones or who i've been writing about are the ones who sustained this um injury uh and are looking to try to um Uh, come back to a life worth living, right? So uh, I break it down into several uh, sort of um, phases of this or periods of this. And I should, uh, again, underscore that it's not all, they're not interrelated, they're not linear, they're not uh, sort of directional, as you saw in the book. But these are people i've talked to who uh found themselves in different sort of um stages of trying to get back to uh a life that they can sort of understand and uh, that uh, that they can they, they can survive in so uh the group sort of goes like this so first there's the people who have sustained this injury and things just don't make sense anymore right um life isn't the way it should be uh you know um they're guaranteed to work it shouldn't have been taken away the help that should be there when that happens never materialized uh these are people who uh don't sort of um understand why it is the way it is right and um uh, all the promises were broken basically uh and all the avenues that they had to come back to something uh were taken away and so uh i found that those individuals were sort of pulling back right were were uh, disaggregating from this sort of social collective or this uh, the social worlds they inhabited were sort of um becoming isolated uh and so these individuals are part of this uh, social topography, right? They're part of that aggregate ground, um, and uh, they sort of pulled away. The next group uh, have to do with uh, the kind of the next stages of this, which is seek seeking stability, right? Trying to um, trying to uh, 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 find a stable place for oneself in this sort of strange situation so finding ways for oneself to kind of survive right um these are also people now who are doing things in the world are starting to act uh to try to figure out what's going on and after having done so um pull on the threads and uh, and accumulate the resources they need to at least stop what's happening right and uh and continue on uh Eventually, of course, uh, individuals uh, who are successful here uh, find stability and begin to connect with others. Uh, And then uh, uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, summarize a little bit. Uh, And then, working with others, uh, they uh, begin to build these kinds of um, uh, shared worlds. And uh, finding ways with them uh, creates forward momentum. Right. So they they begin to imagine futures with others. Uh, So this uh, this range that I've sort of described here is kind of that I've sketched. From sort of pulling back from the social to, to seeking stability to uh, finding ways uh, to um, uh, get back to uh, making a better life for oneself and then uh, beginning to collaborate with others and working with others to uh, uh, build something um, is this aggregate grounds. So the aggregate is made up of all of this. And again, it's not linear. It's not um uh, it's, it's not teleological. It doesn't mean you know that you're going to make it to the one end or whatever. Uh, people backslide. People fall out of all of this. People come into it again and again. And uh, it's, sometimes it's recursive. Sometimes it's cyclical. Um, but this is that aggregate ground that's sort of below the surface of the uh, normative, below the surface of the social mainstream, uh, where people have been sort of knocked out of everyday life uh, and are trying to struggle to get back into it. Um, that's sort of what I imagine as being this social topography right? This uh, this aggregate ground of people coming through these injuries. Uh, and I found that possibility happens, at least this is what I argue, uh, when this aggregate sort of um, becomes uh, more uh, solidified and more stable and, be- and begins to interact with the broader social space of Athens. So uh, these projects that people emerge together, that they pursue, um, uh, individuals who who have been, uh, sort of knocked down, uh, and now we're back together and working on this, um, and these projects vary and I won't go into the possibilities it's in the book, but, um, uh, but they, bec- they start to, they start to, uh, again, um, um, uh, engage with Athens and, uh, pull others in and destabilize things in their own way. So, um, the, the social mainstream that is, so that's, does that make sense? That's what I'm, uh, Yes.
2: Indeed. And that's such a wonderful way to sort of. Disaggregate, aggregate ground, so to speak. <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't want to present it as a something, something formed, right, or something, something uniform. Uh, aggregate, it, it, it is made up of all these different experiences and positions and concerns and things, and so they all come together. But what they share is this experience of injury and this, this condition of being completely confused by what's happening and trying to make sense of it again. One's world being completely upended, right? So.
2: Indeed, And I think, you know, something that's closely related to aggregate ground is your understanding of resilience as negative space. And yeah, so I'm very curious about what radical comes to mean when we think of resilience as negative space.
1: You know, that's a very good question. Again, that's part B of the book. Um, that's uh, <laughs> another big one. Uh, so negative space of the political. So I've just described this kind of aggregate ground, right? And that's, uh, I, I, I argue in the book that this is sort of a pre-political space. Um, uh, I, I, maybe I'll just take an aside, a moment to share an aside. I was talking um, to a mentor, uh, a, a while I was writing this book during my postdoc, um, and um, um, Professor Bornman and he was, we were talking about the political right. What is what is the political? What is politics? And this is something that I've been thinking about since my um, since my um, dissertation. And uh, and he told me sort of on a fundamental level. Uh, it's a question about, you know, am I all right? Are you all right? Are are, are we okay? You know, whatever, whoever we is, right? Uh, And then how do we work together? How can we, how can we be okay? Um, And and this sort of um, uh, question is sort of at the the, the kernel of the political, isn't it? It's sort of that sea, that element. Um, and, And that was really at the heart of my thinking about politics in this book. And so when you think about uh, that aggregate ground that I was describing earlier of somebody being knocked out of the social, um, basically nothing makes sense anymore, um, and their friends aren't acting the way that they should, Uh, those resources aren't there, the collective projects don't make sense anymore that they were involved in, um, whatever they may be. Uh, You find people, I I, I found at least, that those people were pulling back. And I describe this pulling back, and I should say, not as an antisocial um activity. It's not like somebody just turned their back on the socials. That's not what happened. Uh, it's as if the social world just was alien suddenly. It didn't make sense anymore. None of this makes sense anymore. And so uh, it was a pulling back in the sense of looking around and trying to figure things out all over again. And so in the book, I describe how how this condition right um, allows people to start to see things a bit differently. If the promises were broken, the narratives don't make sense anymore, the expectations aren't materializing, uh, you start to think differently and start to imagine things differently. And in the process, gain this kind of critical perspective, that's the, um, that's at the heart of the radical that I'm, I'm trying to communicate, right? This idea that in trying to make sense in the normative being disrupted, uh, our possibility of seeing things differently uh, is expanded, right? It's, um, it's intensified. And so uh, in this, we have people under this condition of seeing things differently and not being constrained by these kind of normative blinders uh, and not this isn't a total affair right it's not a complete uh, phenomenon by any stretch it's some aspect of lives um begin to uh, do things differently see things differently pursue different projects and then come into critical relation with others others who are also sort of uh seeing things and trying things differently because they have to frankly right uh, and emerge projects uh small ones big ones collective ones whatever it may be or rejoin other projects that are ongoing but then destabilize those um, and so we have this new, uh, uh, we have this 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 coming to uh, or back to the political, uh, back to this um, collective life, uh, having gone through this period of well, frankly, this period of impoverishment and slaughter and injury, mm-hmm. um, with new response and new ideas and new thoughts. Um, and one of the things that I try to highlight in the book is that. Uh, Again, this is for a subset of people, right? So, you know, all those collective responses, solidarity projects, uh, resistance actions that um, we see, uh, a- anthropologists have been writing about this now for decades, uh, those are still in place, right? Nothing, that, those are still, those are all good. Um but what I was interested in is those other kinds of projects that are emerging from this space of having been disintegrated from that social collective. Uh, and those ones look very different, uh, from what we're seeing, um, kind of in terms of mainstream politics, uh, be it resistance politics or sort of the, um, um, uh, more mainstream politics. So, uh, that's what I sort of imagined as the negative space, this sort of aggregate ground where uh, people have been sort of knocked out, uh, and, uh, it's really about these small everyday spaces. Um, in these conditions of being in the transnormative, right, um, of pre political intensification, all of this sort of stuff happens uh, in these places. And when people are meeting up, and starting to try things together, uh, they bring something, potentially, maybe um, radical, right, and completely different untethered from this kind of um, uh, from the from the mainstream, back into that political space uh, uh, that uh, they once inhabited, right? right. So, um, so there you go, that's how I think about uh, the negative space uh, of the political, you know. That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
2: For me, as a reader, a key concept to think with you through this landscape of politics was awkwardness. So I'm curious about what awkwardness does for you, especially as you, you know, thought with or as you were relating to interlocutors like Samba, Amalia, or Nefeli's father.
1: Yeah, excellent question. Um... So awkwardness. Uh, yes, yes, there was a lot of awkwardness in the book, wasn't there? And um, um, uh, but this was a theme that, uh, that 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 came to me, or this was uh, a, a way I, I began to think through things. So in the book, I, I sort of look at four forms of awkwardness um, that I that I observed, and um, I, I try to. I, I, this is a thread that runs through it. It wasn't intentional obviously not i mean it's all it all comes from from ground but it was uh something that it occurred to me um in the i think 12th edit or whatever it was of the book um and so I, i i pulled it out and um um i i have a colleague at um at york um who uh, really inspired me to think about it more, uh, Tanya Ahmed, she was um, uh, no longer at York, she's uh, elsewhere now, but she um, really helped me uh, think about uh, what was going on there. And uh, so with awkwardness, so uh, I talked about this aggregate ground uh, a little bit earlier. I started to observe these kind of awkward feelings um, begin to mark sort of a person's coming to see, if not yet understand, right, uh, what was going on, sort of them being pushed out of uh, normative expectations and being pushed beyond their normative limits, right? So uh, it became awkward because one would, um, you know, uh, look for help or um, come to expect something and it not happening, and so. Acting in a way that would uh, that that doesn't seem to fit. Nobody understands why they're doing it, right? Um, and and they start to feel awkward because they don't understand the rules of the game anymore, right? Um, so that was the first sort of sign of awkwardness. And, and my interlocutors, uh, Nico especially, uh, would talk about being awkward all the time, you know, having conversations, uh, and uh, asking things of people uh, that he felt that he could, um, but they wouldn't reciprocate, or they wouldn't understand what he wanted, or they would, whereas, you know, three weeks ago, or a month ago, or a year ago, this would have all been fine. Um, and so for him, uh, that sort of marked this kind of um, beginning of a disintegration. And so he would pull back, right? The the awkward feeling was motivating in that way. Uh, The other sort of awkwardness here is um, it plays out again uh, in terms of Um, People trying to resolve that awkward feeling, so you you know um, it it starts to run through a life, and it's not comfortable. Uh, And so people were trying to seek uh, an end to awkwardness, which actually uh, I I interpreted as uh, seeking stability. So um, it was a resolution. So no more awkward encounters, right? No more, no more demands that wouldn't make sense. No more sort of uh, failed promises. Uh, They just wanted some sort of stability in life, Uh, and so that um, I, I came to. As an end to the awkwardness, because they would talk about it in that way, right? I, I just can't do this anymore. Um, uh, I don't feel like I belong here anymore. I, I need to, you know, figure out a way to make a stable life for myself. The next stage, of course, is awkwardness with others. So, having made uh, some sort of stability, awkwardness plays out again when you start talking to other people about the world that you've now created for yourself—one that you don't feel is shared, uh, at least not in its entirety, or at least not legible to others necessarily. And so, you have to do explaining, and you have to—you um, uh, have to sort of position yourself and, and um, tell people, you know, what, you, what it is you're after. Uh, so, this awkwardness here is in the encounter with the other individual. And, um, what I found interesting was uh, that although people had, uh, experienced this awkwardness, uh, resolved awkwardness, uh, through finding some sort of bare stability for themselves and now are starting to interact with others. Uh, this, um, concern with, um, uh, with trying to connect, uh, in this now sort of sort of post awkward <laughs> state was shared. So other people, uh, and, and the story about Samba really plays this one out. Um, Uh, It was about two people who had come to stability, right, Uh, in their own ways, uh, and were trying to now connect with somebody else uh, to try to work together and find ways uh, towards something better, right? And so it was talking about awkwardness that I found very fascinating, Uh, and um, talking about not just uh, what they had been through and how they resolved it in the everyday, uh, but now also talking about how these two (laughs) post-awkward people in a new awkward situation um can start to work towards something better right and it, it is this uh, possibility that's coming into relation with possibility uh, and starting to uh beyond stabilization starting to envision something and desire something together right and so um the awkwardness begins to dissipate in this in this moment uh, where people are uh, connecting and, and and thinking forward. Uh, and of course, the final one is where the awkwardness has dissipated completely. Uh, and people are, um, w- are are connected with others. They have stability in their lives. Uh, they may be working on projects that uh, with others, whatever they may be, um, who uh, that will that will bring about new possibilities. And um, all of this has consolidated. And even if the project itself uh is uh, you know it doesn't make perfect sense to others looking in on it it doesn't matter because you are with a group of people who sort of share things and see um a direction right and see a future whatever that may be so uh that's how awkwardness worked for me and um it just it came up over and again uh in these different stories and so i used it to sort of think about um Uh, critical transitions and different sort of perspectives um, and new sort of conditions uh, and uh, the work that people were doing um, the sort of agent of undertakings that they would pursue uh, to uh, get to something better, right. To work their way through uh, this aggregate ground. So yeah. Awkwardness was a a really useful, really useful device for me uh, in this book. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I'll keep grilling you on awkwardness. Um, (laughs) So also, methodologically, I found it fascinating that you stayed with awkwardness rather than worked against it. So, I'm curious about what awkwardness did for you during fieldwork.
1: Good question. Good question. Okay, so uh, <laughs> uh, it's a very interesting one. So, as a yeah, in terms of methodology, uh, think about this one for a second. So, I guess there's two parts to there's two two parts to my answer, maybe. Yes, I'm going to stick with... The, okay, there's two parts. So uh, the one has to do with um, uh, with the fieldwork itself, right? So uh, feeling one's way uh, as a researcher uh, and following hunches, right? Um, and I found... Uh, yeah i think this is this is this is right i found that uh, when there was uh, it, awkward moments um that's when my sort of anthropological senses were triggered right as it to me it seemed like um this was a moment when somebody was working through something uh so uh, i tuned in right and stayed with that awkwardness uh and um tried to spend time uh with people so um it, so it marked times, uh, to me when, when people were doing something, were trying to work through something. So, uh, as a methodological sort of, uh, tool, uh, it worked to help me identify these, these times. And then, uh, again, beyond, um, um, beyond sort of people feeling awkward, uh, it was also, um, you know, uh, trying to resolve awkwardness between them and on and on and on. So, uh, in the field, it marked times when people were trying to figure things out, and so I, it helped me sort of tune in uh, to those uh, to those things. The other piece of this is about um, feeling awkward as a field worker. I think we've all I think we've all experienced that, right? Um, it, 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 it was, but it was more than just you know asking for that interview and it being canceled. Uh, like I said, I mean, it was long term. Relationships with these people, I've known them since my dissertation, which is a long time ago, um, and suddenly they started acting differently, or 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 talking with me um, in different ways, or blowing me off, or doing whatever it may be. And and these were certainly awkward moments for me, um, uh, but again, it alerted me to the fact that something was happening, right? Something was shifting. Some 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 something was going on, uh, and so um, instead of instead of pivoting and looking for somebody else to talk to or, uh, thinking, you know, these, you know, they're, they're going through something, just leave them alone, um, or explaining it away. Um, uh, again, that was, uh, to me, a sign that the field itself was maybe, um, changing the, 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 um, the ground was shifting. Right. And so, uh, not everyone. I should be clear about this. Um, not everyone began to uh, respond to me differently, uh, but the ones who did um, were the ones that I really was interested in, and so it helped me kind of identify my population for this book. Um, it helped me sort of narrow uh, the, the you know the, the people I was talking to uh, to those people who were in fact completely um, destabilized.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, keeping with this thread of methodology, if awkwardness is something that's apparent in the book, something that's maybe a bit subdued, which I think might be important, is your movements across the city. So throughout the book, you take us through hospitals, anarchist spaces, scrapyards, Roma settlements, among other parts. So I'm curious about how these movements Helped you link stories of people whose stories may not seem interconnected, but are indeed so. Yeah,
1: that's an excellent question. Um, uh, that is a very good question. So, I think uh, every well, everything is connected. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we look closely enough, all of the threads, you know, everything is connected. And so, when I think about you know um, all the people uh, in this book, and there are a lot of people in this book. Um, You know, the migrant scrappers, uh, they they work with the Roma, anarchists, sort of work with uh supporting migrants um migrants who have a minimal guarantee to medical services in greece use hospitals right and then uh in my ma thesis i spent a lot of time talking about uh, romanian encounters with blood services in hospitals so you know we could we could um follow these connections all over the place um and you know these cities are connected um uh interconnected and finding these webs is really interesting but uh I guess when I was writing the book, I I sort of struggled with this tension, right? Um, to present everything as connected, right? That was what I could I, I could have uh, presented everything as completely connected, um, or allow the different worlds to sort of exist side by side, chapter by chapter, and um, I didn't really. Uh, I didn't really know how to resolve that. I spent a long time thinking about uh, whether I should uh, create this really flowing narrative that sort of ran uh, across the city, uh, much like I moved across the city, you know, had interview in a hospital one day in a Roma settlement the same afternoon. Um or, uh allow these worlds to sort of exist side by side and uh, i guess my the way that i the way that or what i came to was um i, I built in the connections right so i think i showed uh, and you can tell me if i was successful uh, that there are connections right and, and i do sort of hint at them and uh provide evidence of them um and in fact some of my interlocutors talk about them and and in some cases they're at the heart of their stories uh but i i, I tried to set um these uh these worlds sort of apart, because that's how people experience their everyday, right, Um, uh, as this kind of uh, social world within uh, the context of Athens. And so uh, the chapters are um, uh, sort of respect that uh, experience of the city um, and um, uh, experience of of their social uh, worlds. Uh, and of course as we move on through the book, uh these worlds become bigger and more connected uh in different ways, but uh towards the beginning they're more you know isolated. Um so it's uh, it was it was hard for me to to, to to resolve that. And I should say there's there was another uh concern for me uh as I was, I was puzzling through this one. Um it had to do with the way that Athens has been presented in the past and the way that people imagine Athens. Uh, and I wanted to push back against this uh, idea of Athens as a city of, you know, these kind of white Athenians. Um, because I, I saw that as a remnant of this kind of European colonialism, uh, this sort of dominant imaginary of what Athens is and what Athens was. Um, it, the history of Athens is much more complicated than that narrative. Uh, and so I wanted. Wanted to give equal page space and um, uh, narrative to everybody who was there, right? Uh, so the Roma, the um, whose history goes back as far as Greece goes back uh, and further, um, the uh, undocumented migrants, um, and, and documented migrants for that matter, uh, people who have invested in in a big way uh, in the city, um, anarchist youth who have been part of the uh, story of Greece um, since uh, it was a kingdom, uh, and on and on and on. So, um, to me, there was this um, uh, this was this imperative. Um, I guess it's a um, um, it, it's it's uh, sort of uh, following this decolonial. Um, um, Interest, right? This this uh, interest to present Athens as something other than uh, the. Uh than the modern sort of Athenian uh, picture that we have, uh, that has been cultivated um, since um, uh, since the modern city was founded, right? So uh, I wanted to push against that. So in in presenting these stories, um, uh, it's interesting the mobilities uh, they are connected, and I think the the, the connections uh, I hope at least, and you know, your listeners can uh, tell me if I if I achieve this or not, and you can tell me, um, uh, you know, it shows how uh, they are connected. Um, But again, uh, it respects these individual stories and doesn't necessarily um, uh, present Athens either as this kind of social total this whole right uh, which it isn't um, uh, it necessarily it shows that there are these uh, distinct worlds within this place uh, it shows that they are connected um, and that it is another kind of uh, aggregate ground um, uh, in and of itself but each of these communities again deserves um, their own space i felt in the book uh, so uh, i did try to preserve um, those worlds kind of chapter by chapter
2: i think that absolutely comes true and You know, speaking of people connected, from the beginning of the book, you're a part of the broader picture that you present. And as I say this, I especially have your family's letters in mind. So, you know, we don't just see you at the moment of fieldwork per se, but... Um, your family histories, past, own ghosts that bring you to radical resi- resilience. So I'm curious about your thinking around positionality and maybe the temporal
1: politics around positionality. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I'm not sure I can offer a, <laughs> a, a complete answer to this one, but maybe just some thoughts on it. Um, uh, it's a really, really great question. So the, the, the stories, right, the, the letters, um, I opened with the letters in, in this book, and uh, it was a bit of a difficult decision to do that. Um, um, I was talking with my editor, uh, a fantastic editor, uh, at Jim Lance at um, Cornell, about whether or not to put these in. And um, um, I think that... It, you know, in our conversations, at my conversations with him, I was thinking about, uh, you know, building out the context. He was always pushing me to um, uh, to sort of uh, uh, make it deeper and um, and provide more uh, context and information. And so that helped me uh, sort of. Um, Come to the decision to include the letters. So these are these are love letters, uh, and uh, I, uh, for for your for the listeners, um, and um, they're very deeply personal, not to me, <laughs> but to people uh, who died uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, and I was worried that they're just sort of too far removed from the current ethnographic context to be relevant. And so again, I struggled with keeping them in. Um, it, it, because they do tell a family story that's kind of not directly connected to what was happening in Athens, at least not in a direct way. Um, but as I explained in the introduction, I hope um, uh, I opted to include them in the end. And this was for a few reasons. So um, first they were on my mind throughout field work. Uh, I was trying to figure out you know, what they meant, um, what they meant to the people who wrote those letters, um, uh, what the letters um, uh, held uh, and also my thinking about the situation of the letter writers shaped the way that I came to understand the uh, idea of resilience that I tried to uh, develop in the book. So um, the the letters were important, right? I mean, they were in the background, but they were there. Um, I guess, so then back to your question, I guess there's two things here. So first I feel like, The letters sort of show that positionality is really deep, right? Um, It matters not only to how uh, we as as researchers, uh, we localize in the field, uh, so to speak, um, but also how we come to see things and critically how to think about things. So I think this is, when we think about positionality, maybe this is something that we um, that we talk about often, right? Our, what we bring to the field and how we, um, uh, and then how we think about it, how our training of, uh, it, it shapes how we think about things, um, uh, how our histories, our lives, uh, shape how we think about things. But maybe there's a second thing here as well about the letters. And um, this is something that I, I thought about uh, in um, after having written that introduction. um it's interesting that, you know, this This was something that l- these letters were written in the past, right? Uh, they were stored in the cellar of my grandparents' house, uh, and they came back through me after I sort of uh, found them by accident, right? Uh, so the past doesn't really stay in the past. I mean, we already know this, um, but it, it, it comes forward in different ways for different people at different times. Uh, I think we know this as well, and it comes entangled. Uh, with things that are in the present, right? So if we're thinking about positionality, um, it's not just maybe who we are and how we see uh, and think uh, about the field, but also what we enable to be transmitted, right? Um, And so uh, this is part of positionality as well, maybe. And this is – I'm still – working through this um but i'm thinking about this as as a field worker you know your positionality it's not just one of you know being there and thinking about it but also uh, what you allow to come and sort of what assemblages that might form um uh, around you um uh, in on purpose or not by accident as this one was uh or not and so uh, w- what sort of materials what sort of uh, stories um things may come forward uh and so the the history there comes kind of goes way way back um and uh, it may be opaque i certainly didn't expect the letters to come forward but anyway maybe that's my best attempt at an answer to this very good question um a very complicated question about positionality i'm thinking uh about uh you know who we are how we think uh but also how what what, what we can bring or what we enable to be transmitted so so there we go still thinking about this one
2: No, that is so beautiful to think about what we allow to be transmitted and, you know, I want to speak with you about the images you used, maybe in relation to what you allowed us to see. I mean, to me, these images really made the ineffable a bit more effable, while respecting your interlocutors' boundaries. But correct me if I'm wrong or if, you know, the intention was something else. So, yeah, I'm just curious about
1: how you approach the visual aspect of the book. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, So the pictures... uh were are all 100 percent intentional, right? None of these were um, random snapshots uh, that I just in- decided to include uh, in the photo. We don't do that in-, in the book. We don't do that anymore, do we, as anthropologists? But um, <laughs> you know, they're not there. They're not intended to be evidence, right? They're not. They're not you know to show you that this happened. Um, uh, what they, what I hope they do, um, because again, everything from the framing to the content, even the lighting on some of these photos, is intentional. Um, even the style of the photos is intentional, right? I have that one, um, of the disaggregated, <laughs> um, uh, Molotov cocktail. Uh, I have another one that looks like street photography. Um, all of these are intended to sort of consolidate, um, uh, and communicate, uh, sort of the key ideas of those, of the chapters, uh, that precede them. So, um, they're there to, if you spend time, you know, with the photo, um, uh, it takes you back to the chapter, and uh, you can trace through the chapter the different sort of themes that are part of that uh, image. Uh, and and sort of they do this kind of returning. Um, that I hope at least they do this kind of re- uh, or prompt this kind of returning because not all, not in every case, is it obvious what they're intended to communicate. Um, the wrapped up maps, for example, or or the, the picture of my hand, um, but in the uh, in, 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 in when taken in consideration of the chapter that precedes it uh, I hope that they help draw out particular thoughts and uh, and ideas uh, and then maybe also um, connect with what's about to come right so um, uh, they, they kind of prov- provide this opportunity to reflect uh, and I think that um, um, that helps a reader as they move from photo to, or sorry, from chapter to chapter, uh, these uh, images kind of prompt a different kind of um, um, mental work uh, than, uh, than sort of reading and remembering, right? This kind of like thinking and thinking back, which I think is uh, very helpful.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, for me as a reader, um, besides thinking with you, it also helped me to feel with you. I don't know. it really prompted the kind of emotional work for me.
1: Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's interesting. <laughs> oh, very good.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, lastly, I want to ask
1: what is next for you?
2: What are some new projects or questions that you're interested in currently?
1: Okay. Um, So I'm still working in Greece, uh, still working in Athens. (laughs) There's there's a lot here. Um, So my latest project, uh, I've uh, recently wrapped up um, a year-long field work on this one, has to do with um, undocumented child migration to Greece. Um, This was a project that I began uh, after 2015, the start of the um, uh, so-called refugee crisis in Greece, Uh, began to think about, I began to think about uh, all these children that were coming through. And uh, because I was there uh, doing field work uh, when the um, main sort of group of uh, uh, refugees uh, made their way through the city, and it was just an extraordinary experience. I mean, it was disorienting in a completely different way to see this. and um, I had a, a graduate student at the time uh, working in uh, Lesbos, and um, that was, of course, one of the main points uh, where where um, migrants uh, came to Greece. And um, so I, I traveled to Lesbos to see what was going on on the ground, and I was completely uh, completely taken by the um, the situation there uh, the efforts that were being made by locals to respond um, the uh, uh, experiences of uh, migrants sort of walking across fields the fields of olive trees which had new pathways carved into them by these thousands of people going through so that sparked my interest in, in undocumented child uh, in undocumented migration um, and then I had the opportunity to work with an NGO that spent um, energy uh Uh, and resources in supporting children at the Moria refugee camp and, um, uh, their work was primarily with undocumented migrant children, uh, unaccompanied undocumented migrant children. So, uh, that, uh, triggered my interest in, in their stories. Um, and w- during my field work, I was fortunate enough to, uh, spend time at a shelter for one of the, uh, one of the shelters in Athens for, um, unaccompanied minors. Uh, and I began to think about, um, again, uh, political issues, uh, and humanitarianism this time, uh, thinking about uh, how uh, these children started to see themselves um, as part of the uh, world of Athens, as part of Athens. Uh, What were these worlds that they were, Creating for themselves uh, within the shelter, and how did uh, these humanitarian projects shape that? Um, and uh, the um, efforts of these uh, workers uh, in within the space of the shelter uh, to create uh, a safe uh, home uh, for these kids uh, who are experiencing. Probably the deepest form of precarity and, and most unsettling form of precarity uh, a human could, right? At least the way that I was seeing it at the time. And so um, that's the project that I'm, I'm currently sort of working on putting together um, articles and books coming um, uh, thinking through these things and I was uh, some of the themes that uh, came up for me uh, was about secrets, was about uh, friendships, uh, was about um, uh, what what this uh, childhood resistance look like, uh, thinking about education uh, in a different way. Um, and um, Uh, thinking about futures, you know, how do children uh, between the ages of four and 12 who are living in the shelter, you know, how how do they begin to think about future? And what does that mean, you know, for this population? So uh, that's uh, a project that I'm uh, very focused on now. And one related to this is a a collaborative uh, project that um, uh, is just uh, um, getting off the ground now. Uh, with colleagues uh, at universities uh, across Canada and the U.S. Uh, on um, uh, uh, war-affected children in uh, conditions of uh, protracted displacement. So, um, uh, children who have come through war—not uh, necessarily unaccompanied children, but children and families um, who are uh, who are in countries uh, living in these conditions of just sort of uh, liminal existence. Right? Um, they can't uh, normalize their uh, their uh, political status or their legal status, Uh, they are not able to move on in many cases um, but they're stuck there. So what does that um, do to a life, uh, a young life, uh, this condition of liminality, of deep liminality? And so we're uh, theorizing this idea of liminality and we're looking at this um, as I mentioned across three contexts uh, Greece, um, Israel um, and Kenya. So um, uh, different sort of contexts where this uh, protracted state uh, is uh, realized in different ways, it has different temporalities, different sort of uh, cultural contexts. Um, so, a very interesting project, just starting to uh, uh, get off the ground, and that's what I'm currently uh, sort of invested in, um, and um, uh, working towards those. Uh, uh, well, articles and books, and looking forward to fieldwork uh, again in Athens. So,
2: wow, these. Both sound like really difficult and important work, and we hope to have you and your collaborators back when uh, (laughs) the books come out.
1: Fantastic.
2: (laughs) So thank you very much, Othon, for joining us and for your insights.
1: Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure, and thank you for your interest in my book. Uh, It was really great to talk to you. Likewise.
2: I'm your host, Alizar Rujan. This discussion of Radical Resilience, Athenian Topographies of Precarity and Possibility, published by Cornell University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.